Thank you for downloading this documentary from RTE Radio 1. For more information, visit rte.ie forward slash docon1. I'd like to welcome everyone to Locks Distillery Museum. First of all, I'm going to tell you a little bit of history about the museum. Locks Distillery is believed to be the oldest licensed distillery in the world and it first obtained its license in the year 1757. And at that time, it was owned by a man called Matthew McManus. Now, the first John Locke didn't take over until 1843, and three generations of the Locke family ran the distillery until 1954 when it finally closed down. Now, our first stage is our brewing vat, and just around this corner here, if you'd like to take a look, just around the corner and to the left, you can see a very large wooden container. Now, what happened here, water was taken from the river outside, pumped into each vat, and then had to be heated using steam. The steam was coming from a boiler, which is now the rest of it. It was heavy work now in Locks that time. And my husband went into it and he was 45 years in it. First he went in as, uh, he used to go in and milk cows. And then he got into the distillery. And he stayed in it then, he was 45 years in it. And um, it was tough work now. It was hard even in them early days to keep even shirts on him because he was sweating, turning grains and beating backs and... Do you see the, the heat of the grains? They're in their bare feet, turning them. And then you see to be sweating. And it said, it said to me, um, peg in another old shirt or two because it'll be soaking wet in an hour. So they had to stick it in their bare feet. And then there was the far side of the road, what they called the vats. And it was like porridge boiling over. And the night that they'd be uh, working, he'd be called on. And he'd have to have a whip. And it'd be whipping this all night long to keep it from biting off her without a break. There's nothing easy about work that time. Now, along here we have the three millstones, and they were used to grind the grains down. And the grains used were the barley, the wheat, and the rye. And they were stored above in this loft overhead. They would pass from the loft through a chute, just like the one at the end. And it would then pass through the centre of each millstone powered by the water wheel outside in those days and it was said to spin 115 times per minute all right so once the grain was grounded in between the stones here it came out here and the workers pushed it down a side chute or a side slit that goes downstairs and comes into contact with this conveyor belt behind it goes into the pocket on the left hand side and traveled up along and was turned over to this long grey pipe or container above our heads bringing it across to our next stage known as the mash tons. And we'll head over there in a moment. Now after 20 tonne of grain passed through each of the millstones here, the surface in between had to be roughened up because with a smooth surface it wouldn't do the proper job. So what they would do, they would get an instrument they call a mill pick and they would chip away at the surface like this. So they got it nice and rough again. And they might have to do that several times a day depending on the production levels in those times. Now, in those days, how the qualified or classed worker as qualified for a job of this type was by the amount of scars they had in their arms. If they had a lot of scars, they were qualified for a job of this type. If not, they weren't put here at this area, all right? They were moved to another area. So it's kind of cruel times in those days for the workers. Tough, but the look was he was a strong man. You know, he didn't ever give in to... He never wanted to be idle. Work never troubled my father. He was never a man to be idle at all. 
make your whiskey, you need two main ingredients, grain and water. The water came from the River Brudson, which flows alongside the building here, and the grain would come from the local farmers around the area of Cavegan in those days. Just around this corner... It was a great industry. You could bring in your corn in the harvest time. They had the lorry themselves. They used to draw in the corn themselves. And then you had to weigh yourself. And back in those days, there wasn't many tractors on the road. You had an old horse yourself or whatever. You could bring in your corn and it'd be weighed there and you get paid for it on the day. You all had to was cross into the office and get your money. I brought corn into the horse and cart myself, to be honest with you. And uh, I'll tell you, when you get a few bob there, a pound there for your corn that day, it was great to get, you know what I mean? There's no such thing as waiting for your money. All you had to was cross into, into the office and get your money. The man was there. There was a man there, the name of Tommy Coffey. He was a boss man. There was another man, the name of Joe Coney there. He was another boss man. So there were the two principal men that was running it in those days. And everything was booming in Kilbegan in those days. And there was, uh, you, during the war time especially, you could bring in turf or timber. There was a big furnace inside the gateway and there was a man there, he was keeping the furnace going all the time with timber and logs and turf and so on. And you, if you had to old timber on your bit of land or that, you could cut it up and bring it in in an ass or a pony or whatever you had. As you go in on the way bridge and you had weighed and get your money coming back. Have the two mash tons or giant food mixers. They're both made of iron and they both have a perforated false floor, tiles floor. And that means it can allow liquid to nice and slowly seep through the floor because of the way it's made. And the liquid in this case was the hot water from the three brewing vats around the corner. And once this had collected, it was allowed to cool for a little while. And once it reached a suitable temperature, they would then allow the grounded grain to pass through the sacking chute overhead. The machinery would start up, which was also powered by the water wheel, and the water and grain mixed together for three to four hours. Now, during the time while it was mixing, sugars were produced from the grains, making a very sugary liquid, which they called warts. It's kind of like porridge breakfast, very mushy stuff. So once they got in the warts, the machinery was stopped, the grain would sink to the bottom because it was no longer needed, and the warts was drained to a side slit on either side. Here you have one on this side and one on the far side there. And that will go down below by a pipe to a container underneath known as the underbacks. And we'll go down there in one moment. Now the grain that sank to the bottom, this was taken out, placed in sacks and then sold to the farmers in the local area as good quality animal feed for the cattle and pigs in the farms. So to try to use up everything as much as possible, alright? Now we're going to go head, head down the stairs here behind us to the underbacks. I can remember quite clearly the horse and carts queuing from the top of the hill right down to the Clara Corner waiting to get the grains, which was the residue of the barley after the whiskey was made and I've seen them uh, leaving their carts there on a Sunday night and coming back at 7 o'clock the next morning. What I used to remember about it uh, when they'd be bringing out a wash that they'd be the, the whiskey would be there fermenting and then they'd take out, out the grain out of it and that morning we'd be going down to school both sides of the street from the square down to the distillery and down further it would be full of ass and cars horses and cars people drawing the grains and the grains was for feeding the pigs and feeding the horses and there would be an odd big lorry in in it because there would be somebody with uh, horses race horses or whatever yeah. getting the grains the grains was the great waffle feed seemingly and they used to make something else through them and all the grains were going out to the farmers and asses and 
uh, cows or no, asses and horses, cars, if you don't, they're waiting for it, the loads of grain for free home to their stock. Back before my time, they would say about the carts lined up on the streets early morning with the grain going in, and then there was always the smell of the the grains, you know, it would be prevalent in the whole area, the smell of the grains. And the farmers would come in then and collect the grain, and it was a very good feed for animals after the, the brewing. When the barley would have to be left down, it would take maybe two or three days before grains would be produced, probably about three times a week, mostly on Monday morning after the weekend brewing from Friday and that. The grains were in very, very deep vats and had to be thrown up onto a platform and then thrown down again, sort of the horses' carts and that. It could be thrown directly into the horses' carts from what was known as the grain hole. And the steam would come up from the grain when you were passing by, you know. There would be men in in the little grain place to the left, which is now the bar down there. And that was the grain store. And there'd be men in there working and the steam would be coming out, you know, and the smell was, it was really nice, you know. My father worked 30 years at least. He was on the, he used to throw out the grains, the grains for making the whiskey. The barley that was used to make the whiskey, the grains that was left after after being used, and the people used to come and uh, feed pigs with it and all that type of stuff. They used to queue up along the road there. You had to stand down in this big vat, a huge big vat, and uh, all they could have on them was, was their underpants because it was so hot it was boiling, the water was boiling you see the, the grains the, the barley was it? the barley had to be in boiling water you know it had to be cooked actually longer when you made a cup of tea you see when your tea was finished you had a whole lot of tea leaves in the bottom of your cup and there's something in that line the grains, it, they were very hot they were boiling actually, and uh, they had to throw out the grains out on that. There was a big board for to throw it out on. And the people uh, the people used to come on a Sunday night and leave their cars, you know, hearts and carts, and um, to be ready, waiting for them then on Monday morning for the grains, for the cattle, and just to feed pigs and everything with, with them. Turn you off whiskey for life. The dust of the, the the barley or wheat, whatever they'd be using, you know, it was very dusty. And it'd be covered in this white stuff. It was like flour. Well, it wouldn't be as white as flour now, but it was like that. It was <laughs> the river. There was no bathrooms at that time. And uh, he used to have to go down to the river to wash himself, you know, to go for a swim, actually. That was the only water we had at that time. <laughs> Cold water bath. They used to have a, a, a barrel at the back of the house with rainwater. That's where they used to wash themselves as well. And they, when they'd be going out to work in the morning, that was the only water we had in the, uh, around the house, you know, mm-hmm. in the barrels. 
and uh, they thrashed themselves in the, in the rain water. This is the river Brosna flowing through here and this is what's powering our water wheel. Now what we do in the mornings to get the wheel started, we turn a small wheel upstairs where we began our tour and this connects to a gate here in front called the sluish gate. As we turn the wheel upstairs, the sluish gate opens up, allows water to flow through, it drops about three feet down, lands on the paddles and the weight of the water landing on them forces them to go underneath causing the water wheel to go round and round and that's what they call an undershot wheel. Now the water wheel itself is many, many years old, nearly almost over 100 years old, and a lot of the paddles in those days were all made from oak wood, as well as most of the wooden containers inside, because it's very strong wearing wood, all right? Now we're going inside now and upstairs to the tree fermentation mats, all right? So when we go again, height or 28 feet. They're all made from oak wood and they were supposed to be able to hold up to about 50,000 litres of whiskey in those days, okay? Now what happened here, the wort had a very sugary liquid, okay? It was pumped from the underbacks to each of these vats and to this they added 50 kilos of yeast and over three to four days the yeast transformed the warts into alcohol and also released carbon dioxide during the process. And the carbon dioxide made the mixture very bubbly and very frothy inside. And because of its new texture, they gave it a new name. And the name they gave it was wash. Now, sometimes at this stage, the, the workers would take a sample of the wash to see how it was tasting and was it doing okay. And what they would do, they get a little glass jam jar, like this one here, lowered into the vat and take a sample of the wash. And when they drank it, they said it was very rough to swallow. It was also very pink in colour and a kind of an odd or a bad smell coming from it. And because of the colour and the smell, it was so bad, it reminded them of a pig. That's how bad it was. So among themselves, they gave it the nickname Pig Ale, all right? Bad for you. It was the poison of the whiskey. Take it when it'll be fresh. And a lot of them died young. People often took uh, jam jars of whiskey you know, the jam jar would be suspended by a piece of twine or something like that and put down into the fermentation vat and be taken out in this semi-raw state. In the various st stages it could, be t it could be taken, you know, there was nothing to stop people, you know, helping themselves to this um, semi-raw, whatever you like to call it. Now the next stage for the pig ale, or the proper name for wash, it had to be distilled three times, kind of a cleansing or a purifying process, and that took place in our three distillation uh, pot stills. They passed the wash from here into the first pot still, it evaporated inside and then passed through copper pipes, which were running through cold water tanks, and this turned it into liquid. And as it turns into liquid, it will come back into more pipes and collect upstairs here in a small room which they call the canpit room. And this is where the liquid was collected after each separate distillation. Once it fully collected, it was passed to the second pot still, same process again, back in and back out to the third pot still and back in again. 
and when it returned to the canfish room for the third and final time, it was now a clear, strong alcohol like water colour. It was no longer pink in colour, and it was about 80 to 90% in strength, very like a good Irish poutine or like moonshine in America, and they now called it first shot whiskey. Now, during the process outside... There was plenty of push-shot whiskey to be got in those days. People had much money pegging around, and there'd be fellas there working in the distillery, and they'd be in the, what would they call it, where the bond store was, where they'd be handling the whiskey. And they could always get a, a bottle of push-shot for you, you know. <laughs> you knew the right man. <laughs> Bring it home, I suppose. It was great for pains, if you had pains now or anything. It, it wasn't for drinking. It was for rubbing on pains, which some of them used to drink <laughs> Oh, it's just go wild. Oh, I remember it already. Whiskey be getting mad. The first lot, like he knew all about it, and I'm only going to be his dog, and the first lot would be let out into the river. And then the next, and the next go. But then the next was first shot. And the first shot was the strongest. Now, that much first shot was worth a nagging or two of whiskey. And that was the first shot. And the lads used to go down to the distillery and uh, they used to say they had rheumatism and pains and they wanted this for a rub. But it's down here just gone. <laughs> Poor shot, it was at a, uh, it'd be at a certain stage in the brewing, they used to call it push shot in those days. Now, I, I, can't, I don't understand which, you know, but they used to call it push shot in those days. And then there was, they used to call it, uh, push shot was, you'd hear it sells fellas talking about first shot they had a cold or that that's such a lad in the distillery and I got a bottle of first shot off he got me a bottle of first shot but it was supposed to be good alright it was that I don't know in the early stages of the brown they used to call it the first shot it wouldn't be sold no it'd be only during the it'd be I'd have to go on a later stage before going the market you know I don't want you to call it the out on the QT sort of you know <laughs> <laughs> And you see, there was such a thing known as first shot, and that was the first run of the whiskey, which would be absolutely pure. I have, through the years, tasted putin uh, from various parts of the country, which was supposed to be pure, but I have never tasted anything like first shot whiskey. In fact, I got drunk the first time when I was 12 years of age and slept for two days after it. It was fairly potent stuff, especially for a 12-year-old. My father never found out about it until it was big enough to run away from <laughs> what my mother knew about it. My father no had to drink it all, but I remember him, uh, you laugh at this now. Um, he was missing one day out of the distillery. He got a sup at the, the fellow says, oh, my dear, too much. And, of course, he never seen any. He went up the ladder and he fell to the bottom. <laughs> and Mr. Coffee come and got him up. So my father didn't go into work the next day, and he went down the following day. And a coffee come to him, and he says, Well, Joe, how are you feeling? Oh, God, I'm grand, sir, says my father. Well, keep down at that lather, he says, You won't be too good you go up the second time. <laughs> he fell at his feet, and he didn't know. <laughs> my father didn't know he had to drink it all. I worked in a couple of public houses when there was a, a gasoline bottling stout and cork and stout and washing bottles and that type of thing, there would have been a fair amount of whiskey drank, but mostly um, uh, Perkins of Porter. The Guinness cool the taste of the whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> if you had a couple of happens or pot ale, as I said, or first shot, it warms up the old guts, and of course the pint of Porter will cool it down again and have you rejuvenated again. He didn't drink in the distillery now when he was working, but he did take a drink when he'd come home then. You know, he had his own pub to go to. 
just at the top of the town and he'd go down and have a few drinks down there but not he didn't drink a whole lot because he couldn't afford it anyway. There would be an, an awful lot of the, the workers there and maybe some of them at lunchtime would tip it up and uh, have one or two pints rather than have their lunches. This is the old, the old factory bell here in Lox Distillery. They would call the workers to work, break for break time, lunchtime and going home in the evenings as well. We'll give it that. Still working out for 250 years. My memory of the bell now goes back when I was going to school as a child, you know, and you heard the locks bell going at six. And going back to school at one o'clock, it was, did the locks bell go yet? Run, get back before the locks bell went and you were back in time. You know, that's a memory I have of the bell. But um, it was very much part of our childhood years, the locks bell. Going back to locks now, there were gentlemen. And I had to hear my husband saying that when the flu would be out in poorer times, they used to send down a 5 nagging bottle of whiskey to each poor house and as much coal as a horsing car could bring to each poor house. But one thing they never uh, stood by was anybody going with tales about anybody. So if you went about a story to anyone, he'd get you by the shoulder, he'd march you down to the person you said it, and you had to have it out in front of them, which was a great thing, you know. There was no story carrying. So that, that was Locke's life now. They were very highly thought of. They built that convent up there, and they'd done... Very charitable work here. One is buried now out in Dura, and there's another buried up here in the Relic. There was no problem if anyone went to Mr Coffey, who was the manager at the time, and said they had somebody sick at home with a bad cold. He was always quite willing to give them a nag or maybe half a pint of whiskey, which was made into punch, and which I drank quite a lot of it when I was a young lad. Not because I had cold, but just because it <laughs> made me sleep better. His grandfather before him worked in it and, uh, till he was pinching off. He was the grandfather of my husband. And when he retired, Mr John Locke told him, they were both names John, and he said to him, now, John, he said, you come down to the Bylan house, get your newspaper, sit down, relax and read it, and I'll give you half your wages with your pension. And he'd done that until almost he died. But when he died, Mr James drove down what they call a jeep. They used to call them jeeps that time, a pony and thing. And he said to the wife, he says, I'm going down, he says, to put the best coffin that money will buy on old John. And she turned around and she said, well, I'm more than thankful to you, Mr. Locke, but I'd rather bury him myself. Well, he says, that's up to you. I won't take it out of your hands. Uh, the Locks, they lived, they were in Balnagore, in the big house in Balnagore. It was a gentleman's residence in those days. And oh, it's a lovely house. It, uh, it was a lovely house. Still a fine house. It's two-story, but underground. And that'll give you an idea of the type of house it was. But anyhow, uh, uh, they were there, I don't know how many years they were there. Oh, my recollection would be Mrs Hope Johnson. Mrs Hope Johnson was a lock. She was the one that was in charge, as it were, in my time there. And she was married and living in Mallow. 
and she would come up periodically and there was a flat across the road, you know, and there would be a lot of towing and froing when she would be coming. Now, she never took an active part, actually, in the workings of it, but she would do this visit periodically. And um, there was then Count Cyril McCormack. He was the son of Count John McCormack. And uh, he was very instrumental there. He was active on the ground in my time. He would uh, go to America and try and sell the stuff and that sort of thing. Now, he was married to, if my, I recollect, Patricia Eccles, who was a daughter of... Her mother would have been a lock. Her mother was one of the locks. Mrs Hope Johnson was a lock too. And Mrs Eccles and Mrs Hope Johnson were sisters. They were two locks. Now, this is our cooperage, and the first thing I'm going to show you is this here. Now, from time to time, the pubs in the local area of Kilbegan would return their empty casks or barrels here to us to clean them out for them. And the method in those days, we got a very long chain like this, placed a cork or a bung on top to hold the chain in position. They would then fill the cask halfway with hot boiling water, put the chain back inside, sealed it nice and tightly, rolled it around the yard, and the chain inside would knock off all the dirt, and that was the method in those days. And I've been told in the recent times that some breweries in England, from time to time, they still tend to use this simmer process, so it is an operation in other places around the world, all right? Now, in John Locke's time, he never used brand new casks. He preferred to use casks that came from elsewhere, and in those days, the casks would come from Spain, and they were all sherry casks that they used. And the reason for the sherry cask was because it would give a nice sweet taste to the whiskey, and also a nice rich ruby colour, Okay. So when the cask arrived from Spain, the cooper would check them over one by one, looking for a little fault or a problem, necessary repair work that needed to be done. And the most common problem was a leak between the wood. Now, the cooper has a special name for each section of wood. He calls it a stave. So if ever there was a leak between the wood or the stave, as they called it, what they would do, they get a very long rush or reed, kind of like a thick piece of grass, and they place it between the stave where the leak was occurring. And once that was nice and neatly fitted between the staves, they would then fill the whiskey into the cask, and as it fills from the inside, this long rusher reed soaks it up, it expands it, and that stops the leak from going any further, okay? And believe it or not, we still use the exact same technique to this day in the new coop reach down the yard, which you'll also get to see after here, all right? Now, we're going to go down the yard to see our new coop reach, and hopefully we'll see our cooper around, okay? So out this way. We're into the now to the present day cooperage, where we have the, the, the cooper at work. What he's doing here now is he's putting the hoops onto the onto the barrels. A very, very high skill job and years ago to, to when the distillery closed in 1953. Before you became a qualified cooper, you had to start a 10-year apprenticeship before you got your high rate and your, and your qualification papers. It's a lot more shorter today. Back to four years now. We've got steel hoops there, and uh, some of them are maybe four or five years old, the bars that come in. and uh, uh, They're rusty, as you can see there, and we may have to change them or just tighten them up, just tighten up the slaves on it so it doesn't leak. And uh, just basically tighten them up and uh, 
If, if it needs be, um, we have to put in uh, reeds into it just to soak up some of the uh, whiskey or whatever it may be leaking over. There's another couple here with me, and I'm kind of picking up off him as he's showing me as I go along, like, and just learn the trade off him now. First thing you do you now is replace any cracks leaves in it, so that means driving off all the hoops first and uh, picking out the bad timber over it and replacing it with more slaves and um, then you just drive back on the hoops and water test, put air pressure in it and water in it and if it's leaking go back at it again until you get it right. Normally you just fill it and just leave it for a length of time and see if the water level goes down now. There was coopers and uh, an awful lot of people employed. A white smith does metal. My grandfather was one, a metal worker. Uh, they, they had work in metal. They'd have to metal, melt the metal and make whatever they do. And the blacksmith hadn't. He'd just heat iron and could turn it into whatever. And there was coopers and uh, an awful lot of people employed. And it wasn't just for Kilbegan. It was for probably half of Westmead and a good bit of Offaly, Clara and... Uh, Tullamore and Dora Tullamore all round around you. And the people at Terrellis Pass and everywhere was cutting turf the whole summer. And they were drawing it in there and they were getting a half a crown a load. And timber and everything. And kept the farmers going and kept everybody going, especially during the war years from the... Well, I can only go back to about 1940, maybe thereabouts. But it kept nearly all this area... Go on, it did. My grandfather used to, make the he was the white smith, yeah. but he used to do, the, a, a white smith does metal and he does brass as well. So he'd be making the brass bushings for the machinery. Yeah. You know the bushing that you put the thing, that the shaft goes round on? Yes. And be iron and it, you'd have brass there and it'd be going round, you keep it. Yeah, well, he used to he used to get a right few bob around the Christmas, and when I'd say a right few bob, now we got a tenner for a year's work. The original copper stills were taken off and sold, but we've been very lucky here in Kilmegan, as in they are the original stills we see in front of us here from Tullamore Jew, the Tullamore Jew Distillery. And between the three copper stills here, there's around 40 tonnes of copper between the three of them. And this is how they were worked. Ge gentlemen would have stood here years ago, turf or coal would have been placed here, and a chap then here with a shovel would have keep feeding the furnaces during the day. And the heat then would have enveloped the stills until they got the right temperature, and then your distillation would take place. The furnaces would be there, uh, someone would have to be feeding them all the time. They'll be keeping the steam and all going on. They were burning all in the furnaces. So it was, uh, the furnaces were just inside the gateway there. On the left-hand side, as you go in the gateway. Mm -hmm. And uh, the furnace, there was two huge furnaces there. I remember to see the man that used to be firing them there. Well, really, I knew him. Well, Mick McCormick was his name. He's dead now, too. Then in the wintertime, there was big, um, what do you call the fires? Yes. For boiling the water, you know, for the whiskey. And um, people used to bring their clothes down in the wintertime. And there was, the men had lines up for them used to dry their clothes in front of the, those big fires. It was, it was very, we were very glad of it, actually, you know. Of course, it would be nearly as dirty before, you know, before you washed them, to be nearly as dirty again by the time to be dry. It was great that people could do that, though. 
You know, old timber to be down, blow down with wind or that as such, you know. And they pull in on the way bridge and get with loads of timber, old timber to be after cutting out in, in, in the country area and going in and get right few bob. It was, a, it was great to have it to go in, to get a few bob. Three generations of the Locke family ran the distillery until 1954 when it finally closed down. Now the reasons it closed down was due to the prohibition in America back in the 1920s and also during the late 1940s, early 1950s here in Ireland, beer had just started coming on the market and in those days beer was a lot cheaper to buy compared to whiskey so the popularity of whiskey went down and beer went up. Now, to make your whiskey, you need to... There's a terrible loss to the locality. There's no doubt about it. It was an awful blow to the town because it was the only work that was to be got, like, you know, at that time. So there was nothing we could do. There was no such thing as unemployment or anything like that at that time, you know. I don't know. I, I can't remember now how we lived, but uh, only we had relations out in the country. And we got potatoes and things like that from them that we didn't have to. We weren't too bad. We were better than some of the people that were working in it, you know. The receiver came in and uh, it was a case of moving on. I moved on to a better job. Well, some of them got jobs up and down on the county co- with the Westmead County Council and more of them worked on a bit of work with farmers and that. There wasn't much work in those days, as you probably know, but... Uh, it was good to get any sort of a job. They were, the times were so bad, they were sort of satisfied with anything in those days now, really, you know. Times were bad. The times, uh, there wasn't a lot of money paying around. There was no one paying money in across the counter and not looking at their change. <laughs> That's for sure. My father worked. He worked with the farmers after that, you know, ploughing and sowing the land. That's all he could get, all the work he could get, you know. He worked with, yeah, Mr Cooney. He was one of the bosses now in the distillery, Joe Cooney. And uh, he went to work for him on the farm. So he worked with him for a good while, until he got sick, I think, actually. It was the biggest loss of all times, I think, round here. And, uh, and it wasn't actually for the people who were working in it. It was the people bringing in the grain. It was people cutting timber to keep turf, to keep the furnaces going. And then you had blacksmiths and whitesmiths and everybody making money out of it as well. The way it was, it was getting like slack round here now. My own brother, he's dead and gone since. And he was only a young lad and the farmers met slaves of young lads. And that's no denying. So eventually, anyhow, the time went by. Some went here, more went there. They're all dead and gone, my family in England. They're all buried in England. All the poor people, we'll say, in the town. That's all they had. You know, that was the only place there was work. And they did. A lot of them went to England and everywhere, you know. They had to, because there's nothing here. A lot of young people left and went to England. Actually, my two brothers went to England at that time, you know, and it closed down completely. They didn't come back for years. Well, they came back on holidays like that, but... uh, they were in it for about what, about 20 years, I suppose. I came home then and got jobs here at home. I met girlfriends then, of course, got married. When it closed down there, were they, were there was people in Tallamore used to buy the corn as well. There was a place in Tallamore they called it the co-op in Tallamore. They used to buy corn then. Then there was ranks. Ranks had a place in Clara as well. They had a flower mills in Clara in those days too. They used to buy corn too. I wouldn't be stuck for a buyer anyway, that's for sure. Yeah, But it was a handy for the local people, you know what I mean? Mm. 
It was very handy indeed. It was bad because there was not a, people, not a people out of work, you know, and he had to get a job in the council. And he worked in the council until he was pensioned. <laughs> and tough old work it was, because it's not like now they have uh, transport, they have cloaks to keep them dry, they have every centre. He had, their days had nothing. He had to get up on an old bike, ride miles, and work hard all day and sit under a ditch with a sup of tea in his hand, and if one neighbour would give it to you, another neighbour wouldn't buy the kettle. A lot of the women in Kilbegan were absolutely delighted when it closed down, because some of their husbands might be imbibing a little bit too deeply in it. In a way, I suppose it was good that it did close down, because... Every young fellow that went into it went in sober, but they came out drunk. And um, I suppose it killed a lot of them too. You wouldn't know. It closed down with, I believe, somewhere in the range of maybe three million pounds worth of whiskey when it closed. Whiskey which wasn't matured and ready for the market. It had to wait maybe four to five years before it could be even sold for blending onto the market. And in that time, no further whiskey was produced. And once the whiskey that was matured was sold off, there was no further great demand for any workers to produce anymore. I started work in the distillery in October 55. You would hear rumours that uh, somebody's buying the distillery and everybody were perk up, there's going to be loads of jobs. And this would then sort of die, you know. And there were various rumours before that the distillery's going to be sold, somebody's buying it, and that would die. And then subsequently the bank moved in in uh, 58. They put in a receiver and the receiver ran it for a couple of years, you know, as a going concern. And um, then they sold off bits and pieces and uh, I think a piggery moved in then and there were various... um, It was closed down and then somebody bought it. I think that was it as a piggery and uh, it just went down, down, down. You can want to come up one by one and help yourself to a shot of the whiskey. They're all the same. You're all tasting the Kilbegan. It's a six-year-old blend, and they claim it to be a very smooth whiskey to drink. They say it's a lady's drink, actually. So help yourselves. small one looks Just in All right, so head yourselves. Yeah. I didn't taste it. 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 And it's a great, great um, feature to have in the town. We need two volunteers from the Shamrocker Group to play a little whiskey game. Is there any takers? One volunteer and this lady here. Yeah? Do you want to come forward? And I'll just get the little whiskey game set up. Okay? You both have three different Irish whiskies on the tray. One is the Kilbegan whiskey, which everyone has just tasted. Also on the tray are Connemara and Lox. Now, Connemara should be very easy to spot because it's very like Scotch whiskey, very smoky and very peaty in taste and smell. It's quite distinctive. 
Whereas the other two might be a little bit tricky because they're quite similar. But what you have to remember is the Kilbegan is supposed to be lighter in colour and slightly lighter in taste than the Lox will be. Whereas the Lox has a hint of sherry going through, kind of a sweet taste. So what your job is to do is you have to taste all three, smell all three, or look at all three, and find me Kilbegan whiskey, the one you just tasted a moment ago. I remember it for what it was. And I look at it now and I think with pride with what is going on there now. It's just been the greatest, greatest thing for Kilbegan. And, you know, it, it's so elevating to go away and, you see, on a shelf, Kilbegan whiskey, Lox whiskey. It's marvellous. All right. So have a go and see how you do. You're saying number three. Okay. No, I'm saying number two. You're saying number two. Yeah. Are you sticking with your choice? Yeah. And yourself? Yeah. One okay. Up. Number one on both of the trays is the Connemara, the very smoky one. You can smell it. Yeah, it's very, very yeah. distinctive, very distinctive. And number two on each of the trays is the Lox, which makes you our winner number three. Oh, the bit that stuck in every child's mind would be the wheel. Every child that ever walked up and down at the distillery, the wheel, it would always stop people. If you've enjoyed this documentary, you might like to try other RTE Radio podcasts. Visit rte.ie forward slash radio forward slash podcast.